Chapter 10 of Isaiah, beginning at verse 16. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, referring to the Assyrian army, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed, in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end, and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock of Orave. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it, as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Ayath. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geva, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Laisha. O poor Anathoth. Madmena is in flight. The inhabitants of Gevim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, 
Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel, when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. A.W. Tozer wisely wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. And that's why the most important thing about us is not our self-image, but our God image. The gospel transforms us by transforming our vision of God. Isaiah knew that because when he saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up, we saw that in chapter 6, everything changed for him. And in this passage, Isaiah wants to help us to see God in a new way. Two weeks ago, He confronted us with our failure in the first part of this magnificent passage. This week, he shows us God's grace triumphing over our failure with a triumph worthy of God that goes beyond all we could ask or think. You see the structure of the text in the outline there on page 17. I want to change one word. You see, point uh, number three is grace, and then number four is triumph. Under number three, grace. Point A2, I uh, have in the bulletin, remnant Israel made many, 
<laughs> After we printed the bulletin, I changed my interpretation of verse 22, which changes the force of the whole paragraph. I spent half a day struggling with verse 22. It is a hard verse. I think I finally figured it out. And I ended up agreeing with what our, all our English Bibles say. <laughs> but it's a privilege to struggle with the meaning of the Bible. Think about it. What do we have in our lives besides meaning? Our bodies are dying. Someday the whole world will pass away. What we have that endures is meaning, truth. What a privilege to struggle with it. Think about it. So instead of the word many, I think the word that should be there is pure. Remnant Israel made pure. We apologize for any inconvenience. <laughs> Now, when by faith we see God as he is, bending all his mighty will and thought and purpose on our behalf, then when that Isianic vision of God breaks upon us, everything changes. We become empowered to live for him fully and joyfully. Now, let's look then at the grace section of our passage. And look how Isaiah floodlights God himself. It's the most obvious thing about this whole section. Look the, at the way he builds A1 and A2 and B1 and B2 around the phrase, the wording, the Lord God of hosts. Look at verse 16 of chapter 10. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts and then verse 23, for the Lord God of hosts. Verse 24, therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts. And verse 33, behold the Lord God of hosts. See, it's like bookends around each subsection. Why does he do that? Because only the power of God alone frees us from our oppressions. And therefore, he alone gets the glory. And then inside that outline, marked by those titles of God, Isaiah inloads other titles of God. For example, verse 17, the light of Israel. Again in verse 17, his holy one. Verse 20, the Lord, the holy one of Israel. Verse 21, the mighty God. Verse 26, the Lord of hosts, verse 34, the last line there, the majestic one. Isaiah wants to put a sense of the glory of God deep in our hearts because how we perceive God is the most important thing about us. It influences and determines everything else. Isaiah would have liked J.B. Phillips' book, Your God is Too Small. A big view of God is essential because, as we've seen in Isaiah, the way forward into the triumph of God's grace is sometimes, for us, terrifying. <laughs> but if we have a big view of God, big enough to thrill us, we become unstoppable. Paul said in Acts chapter 14, it is through many sufferings that we enter into the kingdom of God. Now, what enables us to go forward with courage, with expectation, is our vision of God. So let's take this one step at a time. First, in verses 6 through 19, chapter 10, 
16 through 19, Isaiah exalts the Lord God of hosts by whose grace vast Assyria is made few. Look at verse 19. The remnant of the trees of his forest, and that's a metaphor for the army of Assyria. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Now, in this paragraph, Isaiah uses two figures of speech, sickness and fire. You see those metaphors there in chapters, uh, verses 16 through 19? Sickness and fire to describe how effectively God can reduce the armies of Assyria to a comically skimpy number, like a child counting on his fingers. What is Isaiah saying by this? Well, think about it. Sickness is a malaise acting slowly from within. Fire is a disaster catching on from outside, devastating us. Isaiah's point is, if God is able to deploy, metaphorically speaking, sickness and fire, he has all means at his disposal to do whatever he wants with big shot Assyria. The world conqueror thinks, look back at verse 14 of chapter 10. Isaiah is reading Assyria's mind. Here's conqueror Assyria. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs and so on and so forth. The worldly conqueror thinks he's going to reach into the nest of Israel and plunder those eggs, as it were, nestled there. What he doesn't see until it's too late is that he's reaching into a plague with no antidote and a fire with no relief. Therefore, here's how it relates to us. A Christian should never feel threatened by the world. Circling the wagons is not what people do when they have a great vision of God, an Isianic vision of God alive in their hearts. From Isaiah's point of view, it doesn't matter whether the opposition to your triumphant joy in God is little thorns and briars, verse 17, or whether the opposition is a vast forest and a fruitful land, verse 18. It, it doesn't make any difference to the fire. Secondly, Isaiah praises the Lord God of hosts by whose grace remnant Israel is made pure in verses 20 through 23. And here, obviously, Isaiah is contrasting the pathetic remnant of Assyria in verse 19, the remnant of the trees of his military forest, as it were, He's contrasting that with the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob, the remnant people of God in verse 20. And he shows us in the course of this paragraph the two marks of the remnant people of God, the true people of God. The first is this, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. These, these unwise military alliances that that Israel forged with surrounding nations, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Now, you see, too often, even today, Christian people cozy up to institutions and trends and ideas 
that in fact strike at the heart of their very deepest spiritual commitments. Why do we do that? Because sometimes we feel a need for all the wrong things. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, (laughs) you put up with it readily enough. Fortunately, God will not put up with that humiliation. If you are in Christ, He is orchestrating the events of your life so that you will lean on Him in truth. A real, courageous, practical faith when it counts. And when He rips from your arms some beloved idol that has struck you and hurt you a thousand times and a thousand and one times, you've gone back to it. When He rips that from your arms and it may cost you tears, do you see what He's doing? He's setting you apart to Himself as His remnant people, very dear to His heart. The other mark of His remnant people in addition to a real faith is verse 21. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Now, the key here is the mighty God, which is the same title given to Messiah back in chapter 9. The title means, the mighty God means, He is the warrior God. He is the God of military prowess. He is the God who can fight and win. Returning to this God means, since that's repentance language, returning to this Mighty God means we repent of the way we fight our own battles and esteem Him so highly and see Him in such a way that we let Him fight for us as He wants to do and is able to do. So the remnant of people of God is marked by two things. A courageous trust in Him and a delight in the triumph of Christ. Remember how the book of the Revelation describes Him as both a lamb and a lion together in chapter 5. So when we come to verse 22, that was so difficult for me to work with, I, I finally realized what the point of verse 22 is, where he says, For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return, and so forth. The point is, however numerous the covenant people may be outwardly, however popular the churches, however full the parking lots. And of course, we all want that for all uh, Bible-believing churches. Nevertheless, only those who live in faith and repentance will in fact be saved. You see, when he talks about the sand of the sea, he's alluding to the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 22 when God promised that the seed of Abraham, whom he would bless, would be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. But we have to read that promise in Genesis 22 according to the way God thinks, the God who said it. That utterance that your people would be as the sand of the sea came out of a heart that prizes not race, 
but grace. Which is Paul's whole point when he quotes this in Romans 9. We don't even have time to go there. The remnant people of God are not known by ethnicity. They are not known by institutional identity. They are not known by historical connection. They are known by Abrahamic faith and repentance. And if that is so, then, here's the point, we must cherish faith and repentance as the very way we live more than labels like Presbyterian and Reformed in our lineage. What's in our hearts is infinitely more is significant to God than what's in our lineage. Thirdly, Isaiah enlarges our view of the Lord God of hosts by whose grace fearful Zion is made confident in verses 24 through 26. Look at verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion... Be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. We saw last or two weeks ago that God was the one who picked up the rod of Assyria. That that was just a tool in the hand of God. And he was using that tool to take his people toward the triumph of grace. Now, if the grace of God is at work through the Assyrias of this world, then we can laugh in the face of the evil forces who are bending all their might to destroy us. They are not destroying us. They are deepening us. Because God's grace is using their malice to take us further and further into his triumph. Now, Isaiah makes that point in verse 26 by alluding to two victories in Israel's past. Look at verse 26. And the Lord God of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Orave, and his staff will be over the sea, as, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. Now, he's alluding to Israel's victory over the Midianites with Gideon in the book of Judges, chapter 7, and obviously his victory over Egypt at the Red Sea. And what these two victories, what they both had in common, was the improbable outcome. Gideon had only 300 men. Remember that? At the Red Sea, Israel wasn't even able to launch an attack. But they won. And that's how God works with us today. Out of all connection with what we deserve or can achieve, the Lord of hosts is with us and he is enough. His power is made perfect in our weakness. God has always worked this way. Finally, Isaiah lifts our eyes to the Lord God of hosts by whose grace 
haughty Assyria is made low in verses 27 through 34. And the key is the last line of verse 33. And the lofty will be brought low. Now, talk about an improbable outcome. There it is. Because if anything is well established in this world, it's human pride. Isaiah sees it too. In fact, look at verses 28 and following. This is so interesting. Do you see 28 and following? Do you know what Isaiah is doing there? The he, he has come to Ayath. The he is the Assyrian army, more to the point, the Assyrian ego relentlessly approaching the people of God, coming closer and closer with absolutely terrifying, unstoppable power. And the people of God in this in these verses, they are in full retreat. And at the last moment, God steps in and cuts them down. Now, now look at this. Look at this back in verse 15 from two weeks ago. Assyria was the axe. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Now, look at verse 34. He, God, will cut down the thickets of the Assyrian military forest with an axe. Do you see what's happened? The Assyrians were the axe. Now they are the forest being cut down by the axe. A day is coming when God will put the whole blitzkrieg of history to a stop forever. There will be no more weapons of mass destruction being sold on the black market. No more saying goodbye to our loved ones as they go off to war in an uncertain future. And not just because God will come in and sort of police human politics. God's going to go down to the very root of it all. God will humble the pride underlying all the savagery of history. Do you see how in this paragraph... Isaiah connects a series oppression with their lordly ego, which he describes in verses 33 and 34. Isaiah understands that God's absolute opposition to human pride is not an overreaction. Every injustice, every broken treaty, every national rape, it all stems from the human boast I will make my own rules and I will force the world into a shape more to my liking, no matter what the consequences for you. Hitler rationalized it with, by demanding Lebensraum. But behind all the highfalutin justifications, and there's always some justification, God sees the pride that's there as the barrier to the world as it should be. And as it will be. And that's the relevance of his promise here. That his grace will flatten all pride. The majestic one will stand forth. 
and the remnant is going to be there to see it. That takes us to the triumph section in chapter 11. Now, you can see from the outline that the flow of Isaiah's thought in chapter 11 is somewhat intricate, but his main point is simple and very beautiful. Look at the way chapter 10 concludes. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and so on. As we conclude chapter 10, what are we looking at? We're looking at, with the, the, the prophetic imagination, we're looking at this vast forest cut down, bare stumps as far as the eye can see. There are no branches waving in the wind. There are no birds flitting from tree to tree and singing. There's, there's no life, not a sound. Nothing is stirring. It's all death. The world filled with death. And then wait, 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 wait. Something new appears. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Suddenly there's life there. From one stump, a little shoot grows out, and it becomes a branch, and it starts bearing fruit, and the fruit it bears becomes a whole new world. Isaiah is talking about the triumph of grace through a new David of the lineage of Jesse, Jesus the Messiah. And we learn something here about Messiah himself and something else about his rule, his kingdom. Look at Messiah himself. In verse 1, he is a shoot of Jesse. A shoot from the stump of Jesse. Then look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse. Huh. Do you see the connection? He is the shoot of Jesse. He's also a root. The root of Jesse. Messiah will be like David of the family tree of Jesse. He will also be unlike David because he himself is the root, the origin of Jesse and his whole family. The Old Testament is already whispering to us what an amazing person Messiah is. He is both Davidic and divine. Both God, both man and God, and he is the one the only one qualified to replace all human government and lead us into a new world. He has more than royal lineage. We see in verse 2, he has the perfect endowment of the Holy Spirit, a spirit of wisdom and understanding for leadership, a spirit of counsel and might for war, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord for holiness. No one else has ever been so anointed with the Holy Spirit as Jesus. You remember after his baptism that the heavens opened up and the Spirit came down in the form of a dove and alighted upon him. No one has ever had such an anointing of the Spirit. He alone is qualified to rule the world. 
Verse 3 says he has the insight that penetrates beneath appearances. Verse 4 says he has the authority to pronounce sentence. Verse 5 says he has the moral integrity such that he actually deserves to conquer the world. So the Assyrians of history, and that is every unrighteous nation and every ungodly trend, they're all Assyrians from Isaiah's point of view. They've left a trail of destruction throughout the sorry length of time ever since the fall of Adam. And there is only one who can take us in, out of that into the triumph of God's grace, and that is Jesus, the anointed one. And isn't it suggestive that the one most anointed with the Spirit is the only one able to renew nature? Look at the vastness. Look at the beauty of his triumphant kingdom in verses 6 through 9. The rule of Jesus will not be the triumph of bland religious mediocrity. He will lift the very curse from upon nature and usher us into a world of joy and wonder and harmony. Ultimately, you see, salvation is not just for, for individuals. Salvation is not even for the church. Salvation is meant for the whole order of nature. Paul takes this the next step further in his thinking in Romans chapter 8. That is a triumph indeed. You and I want to be there. We want to be a part of that world. We can have that very human delight as the last and endless chapter of our story. And we don't have to be excluded. We just have to be a part of his grace now. We can enter in even now. And the second part of verse 9 explains how. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, the world will be flooded with intimacy with God. That's the knowledge of the Lord. Delight in God. Reverence for God. The natural and the supernatural will come close together so that there will be no point in skepticism anymore. It will not be tenable. It will not be possible. God will be too obvious. And that's the triumph of grace. Not just a better church program, but a whole new world. And the way in for you and me is to know Jesus by faith beginning now. There's going to be no more missions then. We're, there's coming a time when we're going to stop having missions conferences. It's going to be irrelevant. That era will be over. Every person will be your brother and sister in Christ. And every day will be Sunday. And every heart will beat with joy in God above all else. And the very environment we live in will bespeak the peace that Jesus brings. And in his second advent, Jesus is coming to stay. Because it says in verse 10, he'll have his resting place and it'll be glorious. The final assurance in verses 11 through 16 is simply that no worldly opposition can imprison God's remnant people when he comes to bring us home from all over the world, from every tribe and tongue and nation in a second exodus infinitely grander 
than the first exodus. The world will be one, and the church will be coextensive with the world. We can see in verse uh, 13, no jealous denominational barriers anymore. That's going to pass away. But instead, God's people, in verse 14, will share together in triumph over evil. The Lord's hand will be upon us, and we will never be oppressed again. The last thing I want you to see, and this this we stand back and just look at the flow of the whole argument. The last thing I want you to see is the connection that God himself has forged between his grace at work in your life right now and his triumph in this new world order at the second coming of Christ. If faith and repentance are beating in your heart, this life is the beginning for you, the beginning of pleasures forevermore. But if your heart beats to anything else, this life will prove to have been only dreariness, eventually slipping away into unspeakable woe. But if you will let yourself be defeated now, you will be a part of the triumph then. One man put it this way. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He took out his wallet from his back pocket, opened it up, and he said, Okay, Lord, here's everything that's valuable to me. My identity, everything. Take it all. You win. And he said, I don't even care anymore. I'm not even regretting the loss. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Have you learned yet what that means? Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would so release us from our emotional attachment to the things of this world and you would so grip us and compel us with the triumph of Christ that we no longer look like typical Americans. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.